ahead and find Acts 17 with me. Acts 17. Well, it's good to be back with you this morning. I need to begin by uh, saying a word of thanks to uh, Richard and Leon last week for filling in for me on uh, very short notice. And I, I mean, you just need to appreciate what a, what a big ask that is. It was Saturday afternoon when we uh, got the, te- the uh, test back that it was uh, COVID. And so I called and Leon just kind of said, I'll take care of it. And so he got Richard to do one, he did one. So uh, thank them for that. Acts 17. This sermon is an attempt to answer a question that was posed by Kendall some time back. Um, the question was basically this. What's different today? Uh, it came in the context of, of thinking about spreading the gospel, doing evangelism, supporting preachers, especially supporting preachers in the United States. And this question is, why is it that, that our attempts to do those things don't have the same effect they once had? In previous generations, it was not unheard of for gospel meetings to last for weeks and to result in dozens upon dozens of baptisms. And we have no expectation of that today. So Kendall's question was, you know, we say the world is a different place. That's our explanation. We live in a different world than they did. Kendall's question is, okay, but what is it about the world that is different? That's his question. And it's a very big question, and it's a very difficult question, and it's a very important question. Now, part of my answer to that question is that sometimes the good old days weren't always as good as we remember. Uh, I remember I was, I was uh, some, some time back, I was reading the biography of uh, the Texas frontier preacher J.D. Tant. And if you know anything about him, there's some pretty colorful stories. But there, there was one, one instance where he went to some small town that had a church of only about 15 people in it. And he went and he preached every night there for the next two, three, maybe even two or three weeks, maybe even a month. And by the end of his meeting, he'd baptized well over a hundred people. Incredible. But then a few chapters later, a year or two later, he returned to that town that he had been to only to find a church with the very same original 15 people. And so the eye-popping numbers of the good old days sometimes were of baptisms performed not necessarily disciples made, and those are two very different things. But I will acknowledge we do inhabit a different world than the world of 50 years ago, 100 years ago, a world that is, I think, verifiably less spiritually interested. We certainly inhabit a different world than the world we read about in the book of Acts. There's no question about that. Acts is the story of the gospel spreading throughout the entire world. Uh, It begins with the Jews in Jerusalem, and when persecution hits, the Greek Jews spread outward, taking the gospel with them wherever they go. And from the beginning of the book of Acts to the very end of the book of Acts, we go from just this little small movement in Jerusalem to now Rome itself is being impacted by this message. In the course of only a few years, the message of this itinerant preacher from Galilee is making waves in Rome. What I want to do this morning is to compare our world with the world of the book of Acts. I want to talk about sharing the same gospel with a different world. We inhabit a different world, and so here's my outline up front. These are the three, the three points. The first question I want to ask is, what's different? The second question I want to ask is, what's the same? And third, I want to ask, what does this mean for us to preach this same gospel 
with a different world. So let's begin by asking, what's different? What's different? Three ways in which our world is definitely different from the world of the book of Acts. And the first way our world is different is there are no expectant synagogues. There are no expectant synagogues. So when Paul arrives somewhere in the book of Acts, his first move is, is usually very predictable. Where's the first place Paul always goes? He goes to the synagogue. So this is Acts 17 and verse 1. <clears throat> now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, not a few leading women. Skip down to verse 10. We'll see the next stop on Paul's trip. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into a Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And so wherever Paul goes, he goes straight to the synagogue, and there he begins reasoning with the Jews. As well, we see uh, Gentile proselytes, converts to Judaism, as well as sometimes just uh, Gentile God-fearers who respected the God of Israel. And he goes and he reasons with them from the scriptures, because this was a people who knew those scriptures, and they loved those scriptures, and these were people who were earnestly expecting a Messiah as told to them in their scriptures. And what Paul comes in is he comes into the assembly of people who are interested in all of that, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Messiah, and he comes in and he connects the dots. He shows them how it was necessary from those scriptures that Messiah come and suffer and die and be raised from the dead. That's Paul's bread and butter, and he has overwhelming success preaching to expectant synagogues. Although it's worth noting, also, he experiences bitter opposition in some of those same synagogues. But the point is, Paul always got a reaction. People always heard what he had to say and always reacted very strongly. So the question is, where are our synagogues? Now, to be sure, there are literal synagogues still in existence. But they're not the same. They're, they're They're not expectant in the same way. In the first century, there's a number of factors lining up. Um, one is that there, there are prophecies which almost seem time-stamped for the first century. People were waiting for the Messiah now. Uh, you see this in the first century because there are all sorts of false messiahs arising and people ready to throw in, throw their support behind these false messiahs. They had Messiah fever in the first century. They're looking for the Messiah, rightly so. And so for Paul to come bring a, a Messiah message always gets, gets a hearing from people. In those early days, there's also no clear distinction between Christianity and Judaism. The rupture, if you will, hadn't set. Christianity was a fulfillment of everything Judaism was leading to. That's what Paul is showing them. And so synagogues readily allow Paul to speak, eager to hear his explanation of of the Bible. There's also this, I think. When Paul stood up to preach, he preached something that sounded very new. Whereas now, to stand up and preach Paul's message seems like something very old. In the beginning of Acts, virtually no one outside of a 50-mile radius had heard of Jesus. Now, we would be shocked to meet anyone who hadn't heard of 
Jesus. There seems nothing novel about this message. Now, expecting synagogues did not mean things were easy for Paul. In both Thessalonica and Berea, the two examples we've read about, if you keep reading in both of the passages, Paul eventually gets chased out of town by Jews who would have said they were expecting the Messiah, just not the one Paul preached. On several occasions, Paul ends up in prison or beaten because of opposition that begins in the synagogue. So my point is not that things are easier or harder than it was in the book of Acts, but it is that they are different. In a world with synagogues full of people eagerly expecting the Messiah, Paul got very immediate responses from people ready to join up and be baptized, and also very cold responses of people who didn't want this Messiah and chase Paul out of town. In a world without expectant synagogues like that, what we see is much more lukewarmness. Again, I don't say that's easier or harder. Paul's situation had its own difficulties, but I do say it's different. It's different. No, no expectant synagogues. Number two, what's different? No public square. So continuing through Acts 17, Paul arrives in Athens, and in verse 17 of that chapter, he goes to the synagogue in Athens, again, That's his bread and butter. But then he goes somewhere else in Athens. He goes to the public square. He goes to the Areopagus. This was a place where philosophers would come and people eager to learn would come and and speak to their students. People would come to discuss ideas and to share share what was going on uh, in their lives and in their minds. This is a different dynamic than the synagogue. Uh, More of sort of a, a cold situation where the pump hasn't been primed. These people in the Areopagus don't know and love their Old Testament like the people in the synagogue did. And so Paul does his best at showing how even Greek philosophy and Greek poetry and Greek mythology points to God's presence in the world, that, that even their philosophers had some, had some inkling about the true God, and he seizes on that inkling and points them and connects them to the true God. Really, Paul's in with this crowd is, to show, is the novelty of what he has to say. And the fact that he has a public forum in which he can share those ideas. So this is Acts 17 and verse 19. Acts 17 and verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And he goes through and you have Paul's Paul's speech recorded. This is verse 32, the result of his his sharing at the public square. This is verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others, others with them. So I think we can put our finger on a few major differences between Paul's context and ours. One is, we live in a time in which more and more people live more and more private lives, divorced from any sort of public square. Uh, There was a a famous book published in the year 2000 called Bowling Alone, Bowling Alone, in which a social scientist used the decline of bowling league participation over the past few decades leading up to the year 2000, he used the decline of bowling league participation as an illustration of how the social fabric of communities was becoming more and more threadbare. 
that the connections we have with the people around us, the ways in which we share lives with people and participate with other people, are becoming more and more rare. In modern society, there is, there is, for instance, less and less participation in civic organizations like the Lions Club or Rotary Club. You know, there's less and less sitting on the porch and visiting with neighbors. And sometimes we don't even know our neighbors and they don't know anything about us. And, and there's, there's more and more commuting where the place where we live and the place where we work and the place where we send our kids are three different, send our kids for school are three different places. There's more and more moving throughout our jobs. We might live in, in a half dozen or more places throughout our adult lives and we don't have roots set down anywhere. We don't have connections with other people. I even along these lines, I read an article once that argued that, that the automobile was really responsible for, for killing church discipline, for removing the, uh, the power from church discipline, because it's not much of a consequence to be excluded from church life somewhere if you can just whisk off to another place very easily. Now, it seems to me that, that perhaps the nearest thing we have, we, we have all these fraying connections with our communities. Perhaps the nearest thing we have these days to a public square is, is the Internet and social media. People there, I guess, exchange ideas theoretically, although I'm not sure there's much listening happening, just a lot of shouting back and forth. I read about an organization that refused to do any more online meetings. After the, the COVID stuff, they did online meetings for, for a long time. And at a certain point, they say, we're not going to do a single more online, online meeting. And this is their reason. They said, online and virtual engagement may be worse than nothing. We, it may well gamify our relationships and depersonalize our disagreements in a way that allows us to focus on scoring points, beating the level, winning the day, no matter the cost. In other words, we don't actually care about the other person on the screen, besides they're just a profile picture or an avatar. We don't actually care about the person on the other screen. We only care about getting them told and mocking their ideas. That's what passes for a public square for a public square these days. The other major difference, besides the fact that we don't have an Areopagus to go to and exchange ideas, the other major difference, again, is that Christianity is not new and novel as it was to the Athenians. Now, Christianity should be moving us in new ways on a daily basis. Daily Bible reading should be uncovering new things we hadn't thought about before. There is newness in Christianity. But as an idea... It's not new. The Athenians listen to Paul because they want something new, and Paul has something new. But in our world, Christianity doesn't seem new to anyone. And it may not get a hearing because people assume they already know everything there is to know about Christianity. And so, no expectant synagogues, no public square. And the third major difference I see is no miracles. No miracles. This is Acts 19 and verse 8. Acts 19 and verse 8. Acts 19 and verse 8. And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months uh, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of God, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, 
and the evil spirits came out of them. Incredible things. Part of the, the, this spread of the message, this, this uh, incredible impact the gospel has, is in part a result of these great signs that accompany the preaching of the message. And we just don't have that happening now. Now, I, I want to affirm God's power and, and God's spirit are working in the world here and now, but observation alone shows us God's power and God's spirit are not working in exactly the same way as they are here in Acts chapter 19. Without miracles, there's not immediate, unequivocal validation of God's authority. Again, that doesn't mean God's authority and message can't be validated. They're just validated in different ways. God's word is validated through studying that word. God's word is validated in our lives when it transforms our lives. Through love, we stand as representations of God's changing power. We help validate it by our changed lives, and people see that, and they say, this must be true. But these all take time to demonstrate to others, unlike the instant and obvious miracle. So so we read Acts 2, where 3,000 people are baptized, and we ask ourselves, when will that happen again? We read those stories from 50, 100 years ago of these gospel meetings which go on and, and dozens and hundreds of people are baptized, and we say, when will that happen again? It's a fair question And Lord willing, it will happen again. We need to recognize where we are right now and where they were. There were 3,000 Jews on Pentecost eagerly expecting the Messiah. 3,000 Jews who knew the Old Testament like the back of their hand. That sermon Peter preaches in Acts 2 is suffused with with references to, to the Old Testament. And not just outright quotations of which there are several, but allusions. And basically an understanding that everyone in that audience deeply understood the Old Testament story. They came together in a public square as a a regular course of life. In Jerusalem, they were able to come to to the temple and the courtyards around it. They came to hear a message, and accompanying that message were miracles. In the case of Acts 2, the speaking in tongues and people amazed at this miraculous thing happening. We have to admit, some things have changed. Now, That may mean that that exactly how we do God's work of changing hearts in this different world may have changed. The way in which we approach things may be a little bit different than the apostles. If we can't recognize that, that the world is a different place, we probably won't be very effective in speaking to that world. And yet I also want to affirm there were a few crucial things we need to affirm have not changed and will never change. Which brings us to our second point. What is the same? What is the same? What I have here are three passages that I think we just need to to put our stake in and say these have not changed and these will never change. The first is Isaiah 11 and verse 9. Briefly, three passages which we affirm the truth of. (coughs) Isaiah 11 and verse 9. Isaiah 11 and verse 9, the prophet says this. Isaiah 11 and verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 11 is speaking of the coming Messiah who will bring his rule, who will bring his authority, his kingdom to the earth. And the whole world, it says, will know him and will honor him. The apostles, the disciples, the evangelists in the New Testament 
saw themselves self-consciously as the fulfillment of this by spreading this message throughout the world, by spreading knowledge of this king, bringing knowledge of God's glory to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 11 and verse 9 was true then, and it is exactly as true today. This is Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45 and verse 23. Isaiah 45 and verse 23. Isaiah 45 and verse 23, the prophet says this. Speaking for God, Isaiah 45 and verse 23. By myself I have sworn... From my mouth has gone out in, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return and here is the word to me every knee shall bow every tongue shall swear allegiance The early evangelists knew that a day was coming when all the world would stand before God's judgment seat and confess confess him as he was whether they had chosen to or not in their earthly lives because there was coming a day on which God's glory would be totally undeniable. The preachers in the New Testament saw it as their job to convince as many people as they could to make that confession now, before that final day came, and everyone would be making that confession regardless. Because only if we make that confession now, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance, only when we do that now will that confession be saving. This is, by the way, picked up in passages like Romans 14, in Philippians 2, this passage. And one more passage I want to affirm is still true. is Matthew 28 and verse 19. In Matthew 28 and verse 19. <clears throat> Matthew 28 and verse 19. Jesus instructs his apostles and he says this. Matthew 28 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This great commission here is really a, a prelude to what the disciples are doing in the book of Acts. The disciples see themselves as, as carrying out all the visions of the prophets and spreading knowledge of God to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus is asking them to do. And so this is my point. None of this has changed. The disciples went out and made disciples from all nations. And there are still nations. And there are people within those nations that haven't turned to God, including our nation. And we are promised that one day, God's glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We are promised that one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The job of God's people has always been to prepare as many as they can in their own sphere of influence to prepare as many as they can for that day, that eventuality, to convince people to willingly recognize God's authority now before the day of judgment when God's authority will be undeniable. The gospel has already changed and impacted the world in incredible ways. But as long as there are knees that have not bowed, as long as there are tongues that have not confessed, as long as there, as long as there are corners of the world and corners of our hearts that aren't full of the knowledge of God, as long as there are still hearts to change, there is still work to do. And the message we preach to that world has not changed one whit. Jesus has still died for, died for our sins. And he has still been raised from the dead in triumph. And he is still seated at the right hand of God. And we are still baptized for the remission of our sins. That mission of preaching that message has not changed. 
Which brings us to number three, the third question I want to ask. What does this mean for us? What can we do to navigate this very different world from the first century with the same gospel that was preached in the first century? How can we navigate? I have just three, three suggestions. Number one, we need to really work at this, to be in the world without being of the world. It's a common phrase. I've heard it attributed to, to Billy Graham. I don't know if he came up with it or if he just popularized it. But I think it's a, it's a phrase with a biblical basis. It's a biblical phrase, to be in the world without being of the world. For example, Jesus praised this for his disciples on his final night. He says this in John 17, I have given them your word. He's praying to God about the apostles. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. But then he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And so Jesus says, I send the apostles out into the world. Uh, out into the world. Not out of the world, but out into the world. And he says, I send them with a prayer that they'll remain holy while in that world. And so his prayer is that, is that the apostles will go out and make that world more godly. They'll go out into the world and they'll go make that world more godly, but not go out into that world and be made more worldly. That's his prayer. And so there's really two extremes, two, two dangers uh, implicit within Jesus' prayer. One extreme would, would of course, to be let, let the world swallow up our Christian identity. Let the culture swallow us up and make us into its image instead of into God's image. We can't let the world, we can't let the culture, we can't let the entertainment we watch, we can't let the politicians we admire, we can't let the enthusiasms and hobbies that we have define what it is we should be so that our our Christian identity becomes more and more watered down. We have to remain who we are in Christ. We have to remain holy. But the other extreme is also dangerous. Neither should we desire that the church be a place that will swallow us up and remove us from from the world around us altogether. Jesus did not ask that the apostles be taken out of the world. He wanted them to go out into that world with their holiness intact. And doing that, be able to exert godly influence on the world, to make that world more godly. That's, I think, the task. We need to be mindful of, for example, our workplaces, as places where we come into contact with the world. I think it's good for us to have hobbies, to have interests, that we share wholesome enjoyment with people in the world. It's good to know and care about your neighbor and to know what's happening in their lives, believe it or not. We don't have a public square like they had, but we have smaller spheres of influence that we can use where we come into contact with worldly people. We have workplaces, we have gyms, we have book clubs, we have sewing clubs, places that put us in areas where we have mutual respect with other people. In a world that thinks that Jesus is old news and think they already know everything there is to know about him, we need to show them who he really is in our lives among them, in our friendships with them. We need to show them what the church looks like, which obviously would mean inviting them to church, but it would also mean doing things like inviting them to our homes to be with us and to be with other members of the church outside of worship. We don't cease to be the church, or we don't cease to be Christians just because we're not between these walls. And so instead of trying to keep clear lines of distinction between the lives we spend in the church and the lives we spend in the world, If we're going to show the world Jesus, we need to merge the two. 
We need to be one whole person who exudes the gospel everywhere they go. We need to learn to be in the world without being of the world. Number two, we need to walk through open doors. In Colossians 4 and verse 3, Paul says this. He says, pray for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Pray for us for an open door. If we're living in the world but not of the world, if we still have our own version of the bowling league, if we're having real relationships with people in the world, there are going to be open doors. Now, an open door does not mean we'll be able to baptize someone on the spot and make an instant convert, despite some preacher stories which give that impression that that's how it always works. It doesn't. An open door is an opportunity, as Paul says, to declare the mystery of Christ. In our relationships, we don't have to mention Jesus every single word. but We should be living in such a way so that when we do mention Jesus, it doesn't surprise people because they never would have thought by our actions, by our words, by, by our attitudes that we're Christians. They should have said, oh, that makes sense. When we have real relationships, when we're living as real disciples, open doors will present themselves. We'll be there to talk with people to walk with people through life events, to offer wise counsel when they're having difficult times in their lives. When people are depressed, we have something that they need to plug into. We have a God who cares. We have a church support system, other people who care. When someone has big questions about life and death, big questions about God, hopefully we've been thinking about those questions for longer than they have. And hopefully we'll have something to say, something they can plug into. You know, the the Ethiopian eunuch, the Philippian jailer, these are instances where Philip and Paul were in the right place at the right time. And someone asked them, someone had a question, how do I understand this? What must I do to be saved? That's an open door. But we only create the possibility of open doors by living righteously and with love and living in relationships with people in the world around us. They don't come from standing aloof, cloistered up in the monastery, never, never ever meeting anyone who's not a member of the church. Walk through open doors. Number three, remember this. The gospel is shared by friends and not salesmen. The gospel is shared by friends and not salesmen. People don't being like sold stuff. Uh, I don't. And people generally know when someone is trying to sell them. And, and even when we do end up buying something, even then we have buyer's remorse and we return it because we just didn't like the sell job. The people we really listen to in life, who we really take seriously and really love to hear from, are people we have real relationships with us, people who are very clearly not using us for anything. We trust that person, and we know they care about us, and we know they're not just trying to sell us something. I think sometimes we think the most important thing when it comes to evangelism, is that, we, is that we say things in just the exact right way, that we just have the perfect sales pitch. We have the right technique, we have the right formula, we've got the sales pitch worked out, and if we just had the wording correctly, if we just had the, the right amount of pressure exerted on them at the right time, then that would push someone into it. I've even heard lessons about that, basically. You know, how to share the gospel in three sentences, how to share the gospel in an elevator, something like that. Maybe there's a place for that. But I think it gives the impression that sharing the gospel is sort of a quick thing that happens, only ever happens with people you've never met. That's how you sow the seed. That's how you move on. You package it in the right way. 
But all that actually stands in pretty stark contrast to what happens over and over in the book of Acts. Paul's best success is when he goes to the synagogue that actually has a connection to the gospel already, who actually is reading the Bible in, in, in the first in Thessalonica synagogue. Three Sabbaths he goes and reasons with them. There's, there's sort of a, a connection, an ongoing relationship there. Even in places like the Areopagus, th- th- there's nowhere near as much success as Paul has in the synagogues because there's less connection. And then from what we can tell by both internal evidence to the Bible as well as external evidence in history, the way those early churches grew after Paul worked there with the synagogues and after Paul establishes a core group of Christians, the way those Christians always grow, those churches always grow, is that the gospel spreads to people's family and friends. And people see the the new way in which these people live. They see the rich blessings of living this way. And they say, I want what they have. And people say, well, I can show you exactly where to get it. I think the best preaching we can do is by living hopefully, living in the world but not of the world, and then walking through open doors when they're presented to us, doing that in a a fallen world. When living faithfully opens up a door of opportunity for us, we use that door to speak about Jesus, to share our faith, hopefully study what God's word has to say with them. And and as we wrap up, let me also say this. Let me offer my help when that open door presents itself. I'm asking for your help, and I'm offering mine. That we're partners in the work of Christ. That you have open doors that I don't have. But when you're going through that open door and there's a question, when you're going through an open door and you need help, you need someone to come with you, I would always offer my help, as I know each of our elders will too. So I really don't know how well I've answered Kendall's question. What, what's different about the world today? Why don't we see the same results that we saw in preaching 60 years ago, 100 years ago? Why don't we see the same thing happening today as we see happening in the book of Acts? I've tried to suggest a few ways our world is different. But I also don't think it does us any good to just wring our hands about how spiritually uninterested the world is and always into the shame. We're not in the good old days anymore. That doesn't help anyone. We still believe this gospel. And we still believe there is power in this gospel. And we still have our marching orders from Jesus. And we still have the prophecies of the prophets who say that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Being a faithful disciple doesn't mean being an expert sociologist and able to compare this era with that era and what's different and what's the same. Being a faithful disciple means doing what God says, no matter what's around you, sowing the seed and letting God give the increase. Those will always be our marching orders. And so maybe there's someone here this morning that needs to respond to this gospel we've been talking about. This gospel, this good news of Jesus, which can save us from our sins, which can give us every good thing that God wants to give us. If there's anyone that needs to respond, come forward now as we stand and sing. Yes, he will pass, will pass over you.